Welcome to the Story Night Podcast, a place where we share hearts, our hurts, and how God's wonder intersects with the story of our lives. A ministry of Calvary Mac. Here's our host, Jessica Campbell. Hi, ladies, and welcome back to the Story Night Podcast. Many of you have asked, how do I get Story Night speakers? Whether they are speakers for the live events or for the podcast, it's definitely been a question I get a lot. And most of the time, it's uh, a woman that I know or maybe a friend of a friend. Sometimes somebody has attended a Story Night event or heard it on the podcast and has somebody that they recommend. And that's usually how we get our story night speakers. But I can honestly say that our speaker tonight comes to me in a different way. Um, This is the first time really, truly that God just told me she needs to be your speaker. And this is a friend of mine from way back. We met each other in about fifth, sixth grade, and I hadn't really been in touch with her for years, but we were connected on Facebook. And when this podcast started, her name just kept coming, coming to my mind over and over and over. And I thought she's going to think I am absolutely insane. But I just felt God telling me she needs to tell her story. So I took a, a little leap of faith and reached out. And thankfully, she did not think I was crazy. It is such my joy to introduce you to Leslie and Instead of me asking her to give kind of that quick, brief, surface-level introduction, you're in luck because she is going to really introduce herself through song, and I am so excited for you to hear her heart through this music as we, we open up with a song that's very special, and she'll explain a little bit after. So, Leslie, it's all you. Tell me your trouble I'm not your answer But I'm a listening ear Reality has left you wheeling All facts and no feelings Girl 
laugh again All you lonely belonging no more Yes, the last will be first And this I am sure I don't know why the innocents fall While the monster stands I don't know why the little ones thirst But I know the last shall be first I know the last shall be first I know the last shall be That was amazing. I am speechless. Leslie, that was beautiful. Thank Thank you you for for sharing that. What an introduction. I mean, I know there are listeners that have chills right now like I do. Well, the song, the lyrics are just so perfectly heart-wrenching, you know, because even as believers you know, new or longstanding, you know, depends no matter where you are in your walk with God, you know, there are always these moments where you're asking those questions of like, why is this happening? Like, you know, why is it that, that, you know, bad things happen to good people? And, you know, just all of those questions that it's easy for someone without any knowledge of God to totally ask those questions. But those who even know him and have relationship, we still have those same moments of doubt and fear and worry and you know what's going on and looking at our circumstances and not quite quite knowing how to you know put these pieces together but then just like god the whole bridge is all about the promises that we just have to keep remembering he made us promises you know he said that the last will be first he said that there would be no more crying and no more sorrow and no more tears like he said that he was gonna bring restoration and healing and, and all of those things. And so it's just such a, I just love it because I feel like my whole life has been season after season of moments like that, where I've really been challenged, but, you know, lovely enough on the other end of those challenges, there's the hope had been made manifest that really, you know, he, he is a man of his word Mm -hmm. and that's what I just love about that. And so I thought that would be a good little opener. <laughs> it's an amazing opener. And uh, ladies, if you're listening, and if you haven't figured this out by now, Leslie doesn't start with the shallow stuff. She dives right in to real life and, and real depth. And that was one thing I loved when we reconnected on the phone after, I don't even want to do the math, after a lot of years. <laughs> yeah. good, good, good double digits for sure. Yeah. <laughs> good double digits. We won't go specific. But. Yeah. So uh, Leslie, I would like to invite you to start us off with the uh, the chapters of your story of your childhood, and we're just going to start there. Okay, yeah. So, well, I was born, <laughs> we're going to start from the top. <laughs> I was born in the 80s. We won't get specific on a year. I mean, not that it matters. I was born in 1983. My parents were together and married, but didn't last very long in the marriage department after I was born. I was actually born in Georgia on a military base. So I am a military brat by birth, but again, the marriage didn't last very long. So we quickly moved in with my grandparents. And and I can just say that, you know, as I look back, probably some of my most sweet and innocent moments were in that first couple of years. It was just me and my mom and my grandparents And we lived with them in San Diego um, until I was about two. And because of my dad not being in the picture, we didn't have any financial help from him. So my mom went on welfare and we also got into HUD housing, which is a government support for living arrangements. And she prayed about it. She, she grew up a believer. Calvary Chapel was our upbringing Uh, Big Calvary in Costa Mesa, uh, basically grew up (laughs) there out of the womb. I was just as long as I can remember being uh, in kids ministry of Bible studies and and stuff um, with Calvary. But we ended up in Irvine and she had about five or six different applications and she prayed about it, but she really kind of wanted Irvine. 
and the Lord gave it to her. And so we were living in Irvine, just me and her and going to church, probably, I would probably say a good four or five nights a week easily. We were so entrenched in church at that time. And so I grew up knowing about God, knowing about Jesus, doing the, you know, church thing, you know, not just every Sunday, but literally pretty much all week. We almost lived there really. And my mom had these really great friends. And because I it was, I was an only child and it was just me and my mom, I was around all of her and her friends all the time. So I was always around adults. And I just remember hearing them talk about their relationship with the Lord and just how much they they just loved him. And it was with such tenderness and sweetness. They just loved him. But I didn't quite understand what that meant because, you know, I was probably five at the time and just like, what does that even mean? How do you be so in love with somebody? How can you be in love with somebody that you've never seen before? You know, I just didn't get it. But that was my upbringing. And uh, my uncle, he was the worship pastor there at Calvary for many years. And my family is all very involved in ministry and music. I was close with my grandparents. They were basically my second parents. That was pretty much my family unit was my mom and my grandparents. And started going to school at Calvary Chapel, uh, which they called Maranatha Christian Academy. And so from kindergarten through about half of fourth grade, I was at church I was in school, all centered at Calvary Chapel. And those were some great years. I mean, obviously, you know, as a kid, you experience the normal stuff, bullying and, you know, kids being mean. And even in private school, it was still the same. Um, So early on, I experienced a lot of insecurity, Um, a lot of bullying, kids making fun of me, calling me big eyes because I had big eyes. And my mom, I remember she'd always just say, you're going to get to an age where you're going to appreciate those big eyes. And, (laughs) you know, as a kid, you're like, whatever, mom, I don't, they don't like me. They think my eyes are big, you know, just kid stuff. But it really affected me, you know, and then obviously not having my dad around. He was very much in and out of my life, more out than in. So I really, I remember actually in kindergarten, we had to fill out a little thing at school and it said, what's your favorite thing to do with your mom? And what's your favorite thing to do with my dad? And I can't remember what I said for my mom, but for my dad, I said opening presents because that's really all we ever did. Every time he would come to visit, which was few and far between, he'd come with presents. And that was his way of making up for his lack of being there. But obviously growing up without a dad definitely impacted me and the way I saw myself. I grew up with a lot of feelings of abandonment and rejection and then getting the bullying on top of it. Like it was really just such a tornado storm of like the worst way to really grow up feeling because the, those mindsets and, and lies really, they're just lies. It's not the truth. But when you believe those things, they become part of your identity. And they become who you believe yourself to be. And so for years and years and years, I believed terrible things about myself. I believed that every other person in this world was worthy of having a family, but that was not for me. I would see, you know, we'd be at the park in Irvine and they have all these beautiful parks and you'd see, you know, kids with their mom and dad and their dog. And it was just this perfect thing And I remember just look thinking, going, gosh, I wish I could have that one day. And then immediately the thought would come in. Yeah, but that's not going to happen for you. So very early on, I was believing a lot of lies and I really, you know, it was, it was very sad and it was hard for me, but my mom and I were really close. It wasn't until I was probably about seven that she started dating, which is kind of enter in (laughs) the first level of chaos to enter into my life. She dated someone and I just remember feeling like I didn't really like him. (laughs) I didn't like him at all. I felt like the only stability that I had was being divided and her attention was being divided and her love was being divided and I just didn't like it. And I, things started changing that perfect atmosphere that I sort of had in my mind grown up in as far as, you know, happy memories with my family and my mom were that started to dissipate. She didn't stay with that first man for very long, but the second one, he was a musician and he was a raging alcoholic. I remember the first night we were supposed to meet him and she had, she had known him previously just through people and he never showed up. 
We go home the next morning. I wake up and she's walking me down the stairs to take me to school and he's asleep on the couch. And I just looked at him and I thought, that's weird. (laughs) Why is this random person sleeping on our couch? And he never left for years. He was an alcoholic. I had never really experienced anything like that before. His behavior was very erratic and violent. He was loud and would start fights. He threatened us all the time, constantly threatening to get, because he was at the point where he was in the DTs. Like he was totally blacked out and not really aware of what he was doing. But I was just growing up in this chaotic environment, just watching all these things and feeling like I was the only sane person in the house because I couldn't understand why is this being allowed to happen? Why is he still here? If he's doing all of these things, it doesn't, it didn't make sense in my mind. And obviously growing up around adults and not having a lot, I mean, I, I had kids in my life that were my age, but my mentality from being with a single mom and only child around adults all the time, I had a very mature mentality for such a young person. And so I just, I couldn't make two cents of it. I didn't understand what was happening and why this was allowed to happen. I was just said, I don't understand. Let's just call the police and get him out of here. I mean, he, we had to hide our silverware at night because he would go into the kitchen and pick up a fork and lunge after my mom or try to walk up the stairs. And, you know, I, we had a two story and I would just sit at the top of the stairs, holding onto the bars of the railing with my head, just pressed through two of the beams, just listening and watching. And I couldn't, I felt completely powerless because I was, I was a child, but I felt responsibility to care for my mom because it was just me and her and I felt protective of her. And so I would just sit there and watch all of this happen and just be frozen in fear, not knowing what I was supposed to do or what I was, if, should I call the police? And then I thought, no, if I call the police, my mom's going to get mad at me. And so just, you know, as a child, you're just trying to process all this stuff. And that went on for years, for years, night after night, after night, I cried myself to sleep night after night, after night, and just praying to God because I had a relationship with him. It wasn't to the extent that it is now, but I had, we were buds, you know? So I'd pray and be like, God, I don't, why is this happening? Why do you keep letting this happen? Why, 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 why? Just the why question over and over and over um, as we all do. And I, I didn't, I wouldn't know that answer for years, but now I can look back and go, wow, God, like you really prepared me for what was to come. And if I hadn't gone through that, I wouldn't have gotten through what was going to happen later. And we'll get there because (laughs) let me tell you, my life is a mini series. So, but anyway, um, so that went on for many years. That was pretty much my formative years. So, you know, there's a lot of instability in the house. He was a musician. So, you know, he'd be playing at gigs all over and our life was basically revolved around him. My needs absolutely were put on the back burner. Around that time also, I had begun to merge out of private school because at that time, obviously, you know, my mom is dating this guy, they're not married, they're living together, you know, so all of the no-nos in the church community were all happening. And obviously being the sister of somebody who was in ministry at that church, we were a little bit put under a microscope as well. And so there was some judgment. I mean, obviously that that's natural to have that, but around that same time, it was about halfway through fourth grade that her boyfriend got a job with a circus. I know a circus, (laughs) like what (laughs) are those even a thing anymore? Like, yes, like it was a legit, it was the Bentley brothers circus and they were a full on traveling show and he was in the band. And so my mom thought it would be a fun idea to take me out of school homeschool me the rest of the year and go and basically run away and join a circus. (laughs) So we did, we did. And I'll never forget. It was the beginning of my taste for travel and being on the road and being comfortable, just going from place to place, kind of, you know, living out of your car, you know, voluntarily. (laughs) And um, we traveled for, the whole summer. Um, I turned 10 in New York City, watched Jurassic Park in the movie theater. That'll give you some 
perspective on <laughs> my agent at that time. But again, everything revolved around him. So we had this camp, right? Cause it's all these families traveling together and they're all, I mean, this is like generations of performers, you know, high wire act, ligers, bears on tricycles, like juggling acts, you know, a uh, Spanish web trapeze. Like, I mean, just literally everything you would imagine would be in a circus. Um, but I was left alone a lot and other people in the group obviously took notice of that and would do what they could to, you know, feed me if they saw that I hadn't eaten dinner yet or, you know, just sort of everybody sort of took care of each other. But I remember there was one time and this really, I mean, still kind of affects me to this day. There were kids up too, also because of the families and one of my friends, they had this bus like a big bus and they all lived in this bus together. And I was just walking by and she's like, Hey, you know, like, have you eaten dinner yet? And I was like, no, that's okay. I don't know. You know, I don't know what I'm going to eat. And, and she's like, well, we can't afford to feed you anymore. It's really becoming quite a burden. And in that moment, I was literally told that I was a burden. <laughs> and so I adopted that as like, Oh no, I don't want to be that. And so, but I, I mean, I, I was literally left alone for hours on end and kind of took taking care of myself. And, mm -hmm. but in that moment I had decided, okay, I will never be told that I am a burden ever again, never again. I will never, that will never come out of someone's lips in regard to me because that just as a 10 year old. And of course, like I kind of was because where was else, where else was I going to go, you know, but it was just the position that I was put in. And so I adopted that mentality and carried on with my life. So we finished with the circus. It was going to be the end of, of the summer and it was time to go for me to go back to school. Um, but we decided that I wasn't going to continue with private school. I was going to go to public school and that's enter where we met. <laughs> fifth grade was my first experience with public school kids. And I mean, honestly, it really was very much the same as the private school. There were, I had a few nice friends uh, and a lot of bullies <laughs> and a lot of bullies. And, you know, I think we can all relate to that a little bit, but it definitely, you know, coming from the background and all the experience that I had already experienced and then trying to explain to another fifth grader that you just traveled with a circus you know, you're going to get some, <laughs> you're going to get some interesting looks, you know, obviously fifth and sixth grade, you're just still trying to figure out who you are. And I mean, obviously even still now I'm trying to figure out who I am, but at that time you're really sort of formulating your basic personality traits and part of your character and how you interact with other kids. And then, you know, hormones come into play and just that whole age is just so whacked out for kids. So emotional. It's uh, you know, so it's a struggle. But it was during sixth grade that I sort of discovered choir. And that was sort of the beginning of really sort of stepping into music. Because even through all of this stuff that I had been through, music was always the catalyst that sort of carried me through. You would never see me without headphones. I always had headphones in because there was always chaos in the house. And singing made me feel better. And the louder, the better. It just felt really good. It felt like it was coming through my chest, exploding out of my body. And, and what I didn't realize until later on is that that was actually a gift that God had given me, knowing that I would be going through everything that I would go through as a coping mechanism for myself. But as I began to and continued to throughout my life cultivate that, it really became the trumpet that it will be and is for not only myself now, but for everybody else. And it's such a cool, it's just another thing where it's like, you know, he made us in our mother's womb, like knowing all the little bits and pieces that we would each need to get through the things that he knew we were going to have to get through. And it's, it's just so cool to look back and go, wow, like I, God was really helping me even just through listening to music and singing along and, and, you know, and, and that's really where I sort of cultivated myself musically. I listened to all sorts of different types of music. I never stuck to one genre. 
for the longest time I hated jazz, but that's only because my mom's boyfriend played a lot of jazz music. So it's like association, you just don't like it. But now I sing jazz all the time. So <laughs> I just kind of laugh and again go, wow, thank you, God. Like if I had known <laughs> that I would, you know, be utilizing all of these things that I was exposed to as a little kid, you know, it's just interesting to look back. But so anyway, fast forward, um, I start getting into choir in school. Middle school was even worse than elementary school. That was just the worst. I mean, the kids were the worst. They were mean. I, that's where I really sort of started developing an eating disorder, which is another chapter. My mother actually struggled with that for many years. And so I sort of adopted it by example, but that was my counterfeit comfort was food because when there was no consistency in my house, no consistency in the leadership of my house, I went to what was a guarantee, which is food. And it was always there for me to comfort me and to make me feel better, fill me up literally. But that very quickly became the vehicle of my way of sort of processing all of this stuff that I had been going through. Cause I had, you know, my mom had sent me to therapists over the years and done that whole thing because of all the chaos that I had experienced in my childhood. All the while, my dad's still not being around. <laughs> so it's just chaos. But it didn't really do anything for me at the time. And, you know, and then eating. And then obviously you're getting to that age where boys are, you know, a big thing. And then, you know, no boys were liking me. So it must be because of the way I look. And of course, then you go through all of those conversations in your head about if I was this way, then it would be better. If I look like this, it would be better. If I was this skinny, gosh, I can't see my rib cage, but she can see her rib cage. So maybe I should you know, make it so I can see my rib cage, you know, but then you're binging and purging and you're just, you know, killing yourself. And that's what I was doing I, for years. And honestly, if I'm being really honest, I still struggle to this day. Um, and I know that ultimately I will overcome that just like I've overcome everything else. But if I'm going to be honest and share this part, I have to be honest that I'm not over it yet. And that's okay. You know, and for any of you that are struggling with that, that's okay too. Like, just know that wherever you're at, like God meets us wherever we're at and he met, he meets me here, but that's kind of where it all started. And then high school rolls around and I really start getting into choir. I'm singing a lot and we left Calvary Costa Mesa and we hadn't really gone to church a whole lot, maybe here and there, we'd go a little bit here and there, but we sort of just stopped going. And partially, I think it was because my mom just didn't want to deal. And she probably felt a lot of shame. And so she just didn't feel like we should go, which is very normal <laughs> to feel that way. Uh, and very sad. And it's again, another believing of a lie. But when you're in it, you know, all you see is what's in front of you. And, and so we just didn't go for a long time. Uh, and of course, the boyfriend was still in the picture. And so anytime we brought him anywhere, it was just an embarrassment waiting to happen. So in high school, we started going to Calvary Capo Beach, which was a sister of Big Calvary in Costa Mesa. And it was actually the pastor at the time was Pastor Chuck's son, Chuck Jr. So we were going in high school. And if Again, another full circle thing, a lot of the musicians that we met while she was dating this person, some of them were actually in the band. <laughs> so it really started to, I started to see like, wow, early on, the reason that I had to experience this person was not only because I needed to experience what I was going to experience with this person, but I was going to meet a lot of people that were going to connect me later on to my purpose and the plan that God had for my life. And so it wasn't until I think I must have been 15 that I was invited to sing a solo at church. And from that moment on, I was singing more and more at church, started doing some recording uh, where I was actually being hired to sing demos and, and, and do different things like that. And I was very heavily involved in choir. We had show choir like before Glee. We actually used to joke about the fact that they should make a show about what we're experiencing. And then they did all those years later with Clee. But we had show choir and, and did that whole thing. I was baptized at Calvary. I was baptized um, for the first time. I've been baptized twice, but for the first time on a youth group trip in the Colorado River. And um, that was the first time that I had really sort of made that declaration. 
I mean, I was always making the declaration that was never like I needed to do that, but we need to do that, you know? So I made the declaration that Jesus was my Lord and savior and I got baptized and it was a really sweet time. Also around that same time, I started dancing. I mean, I'd always been a dancer, even back as a young little person. Actually a really sweet thing my mom did. She used to clean the dance studio so that I could take lessons. Like that was the trade-off because she couldn't afford it, obviously, but she did that. So she cleaned the studio. And so I grew up dancing as well as singing. But in high school, I started swing dancing because that was the thing that was going on at the time. Everyone was dressing up and going to Carnation Plaza at Disneyland and and doing the Lindy Hop. And, and I was just obsessed and I loved it. And so during that time, not only was I singing, but I was also dancing three nights a week. Uh, once I graduated high school, I started working for Arthur Murray because of that, which is a dance studio. I was getting ready to graduate and they're like, what are you going to do? And and I'm like, I don't really know. I just have to go to college. That's the only thing I kind of have to do because part of the pressure of living in welfare and living under HUD housing is once you turn 18, if you're not in school full time, they're going to take a portion of your income as well. And so I had this pressure that no matter what I did financially, I had to go to school full time. So I enrolled at Orange Coast College and I just knew that was where I was going to land after high school. But then I was told, hey, why don't you apply for the Arthur Murray training program? They'll train you. They'll teach you, you know, all the steps, you know, 10, there's like 10 dances that they're going to teach you all these steps, guys part, girls part, and they're going to teach you some training on sales. And then you're going to go be a teacher. And I thought, well, what a perfect thing to do. I love dancing. I love all this stuff. So I did. I started the training program. I think it was probably July of that summer. And I started teaching the end of August. I mean, I was in and out of that training program so fast. I fell in love even more with all of the other dances because I had really only done swing and a little bit of salsa. But I mean, learning foxtrot, waltz, tango, rumba, cha-cha, swing, merengue, mambo, samba, hustle. I mean, it was just, I felt like this whole world had just exploded with excitement for me. I just, I absolutely loved teaching. And so I did that. I started teaching um, in August of that year. And that's also where I met my first love. I mean, I didn't date in high school. I had never been kissed in high school. Like I was just you know, my insecurities and just the the things that I believed about myself really kept me at bay from, and sometimes I look back and think that God was protecting me and he probably was because with everything that I had been through, you know, my life could have gone in a completely different direction based on my choices after experiencing those things. But fortunately, by the grace of God, you know, I was, I was kind of uptight (laughs) and really, 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 really innocent. And I didn't even drink in high school. I didn't do, I mean, obviously I didn't because I'd grown up with an alcoholic, so I wasn't even going to go there. But once I started teaching at Arthur Murray, I met this guy and I've had the feels like the bubbles in my stomach and he just was so sweet and we danced together and it was all so sweet. And then he left like a month and a half into me working there. And I didn't really know why until later I found out he ended up having to go to jail. (laughs) And yes, but that didn't sway me at all. I thought, well, you know, he's misunderstood or he must have a troubled, you know, youth. And so of course I'm just making all of these excuses and not really looking at it for what it was, but I was smitten. I was a smitten kitten and I sure was that 18 year old who got all dolled up just to go to jail for a visit. And we weren't even dating at that time either, by the way, we were just still friends, but I was just, there was something that was drawing me to him. And I just, I couldn't not go to him. You know, I don't know what it, it was just young love or whatever. It was, I left Arthur Murray um, about a year later because it was so the schedule was so intense. I I was literally going to school from 7.30 to 12.30 and then had to be at work from one to 10, Monday through Friday. It was a completely chaotic schedule. And because I was only forced to kind of go to college, I didn't really want to. So I took the classes that were interesting to me and the rest, I just didn't bother. And I flunked most of them because I just didn't show up. I just really didn't take school seriously at that time. 
and um, just dedicated all of my time to work. Again, full-blown eating disorder, full-blown lack of responsibility, didn't save a dime, wasn't taught how to save a dime because we didn't have a dime to save. You know, so I really wasn't, I was just kind of floating. I was just sort of skimming the surface and, and living. So yeah, I left Arthur Murray and found a job at another dance studio in Fullerton this time. And I was able to work part-time. So it was a little bit easier on my schedule. And one day I go up, go into this coffee shop to get a coffee and there is the boy, the crush out of jail, working at his sister's coffee shop. Seems like he's got his whole life together. And it was like, I mean, it was like the fireworks. It was just that feeling that you imagine it is in all of those romantic comedies. All of that. I had all of that. And both of us did. And our relationship quickly became a relationship. And he was my first everything. He also is the one who introduced me to drugs. He was like a non-official dealer, I guess you would call him. (laughs) I was so... I don't want to use the word obsessed, but probably obsessed would be appropriate. That's probably why I don't want to use it because it's very telling. But I was, I was so committed to keeping that relationship because it was the first time any man had ever shown me any love. Every example, other than my grandfather and my uncle Mark, all the men in my life were flakes. And they left me and abandoned me and reject, you know, just all of those feelings. I had, I just wanted someone to want me so badly. I really just needed to be loved. And so even though he was presenting all of these things that never in a million years would I, I mean, I never wanted to have sex before marriage because I understood what purity meant And I wanted so badly to have that type of a relationship where a man was loved me the way Jesus loves us. You know, the way that men are supposed to love women (laughs) the the right way, but I never experienced that. So part of me just didn't believe that again, that it was something that I was ever going to experience. But then I was getting a part of what I wanted And I was afraid that I wouldn't get anything else. So I just stayed. And the more I stayed, the more I just wanted to be a part of everything. And that's where I really started sort of participating in in drugs. He was into like raves and parties and warehouse parties and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, marijuana all day, every day, like every day, all day. Wake and bake, morning, noon, night, just all the time. Like there, I don't think there was a time that we weren't stoned, honestly. And obviously going to parties and ecstasy and cocaine and just, you know, all the things that I never in a million years thought I would participate in. And never in a million years. I was the good girl. I was the one that did everything right. I followed all the rules. I wanted to do everything right so that I would never be left or rejected or pushed away or whatever. And I mourned myself in the moments, in those moments, I remember just like crying to God. And, and, and keep in mind throughout all of this, I'm still totally plugged into God by way of I'm talking to him every day in the moment, even when I'm like freaking out and I'm on mushrooms in the middle of the forest in the pitch black of night, I'm praying to God throughout all of it. And just going, how did I get here? How did I end up here? But it was in those moments that when I was really listening, because I was sincerely asking that he spoke and it wasn't necessarily audibly, but he always just gave me an assurance that everything was going to be okay. Even, even on, you know, mushrooms you were talking and listening and and I I know there are so many moms who listen who have children mm-hmm. who are dealing with some of the things that you just talked about mm-hmm. whether that's dating the wrong guy making unsafe choices mm-hmm. the drug culture eating disorders insecurity you name it 
there are just so many parents out there that there are grieving for their mm-hmm. children. Mm-hmm. And your story is such a reminder and such a testimony that God loves those children even more than the parents love those children. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he never abandons them. Right. And for the families who, like in your life story, you were introduced to Jesus at a very young age. Mm-hmm. And those seeds that were planted, even though for chapters of your story seemed like probably from the outside that that those seeds that were planted were just totally dead and gone. But they weren't. They weren't. They were still there. And and just to think of, you know, somebody when for those of us who look at some of those chapters from the outside looking in, you just sort of think, oh, you know, these people they don't want anything to do with God. They're way off the rails. And you just you just can't go too far. There's right. you you can't go so far that God can't reach you. Like you can't outrun him. <laughs> you can't hide from him. You can't you can't get yourself so deep that your life can't be redeemed. Absolutely. I use this analogy. It's like whenever we are introduced to the Lord and we accept him, like doesn't have to be some big declaration in front of everybody, but just that moment that we have where we know, we know that we know that we know that we know that he is who he is. It's like a leash has been put on. And it's like one of those retractable ones that just, it'll go as far and far and far and far and far and far and far to where you can't even see the person that's attached to the other side, but you're still connected. And you still, he still has that retract button. And the only way that we can actually separate is for us to just be like, I'm done. And I refuse to believe in you anymore. Like, but no, nothing that we do, not no mistakes that we make. There's nothing that we can do that would ever separate us from the love of God. And even if we still said, you know what, God, I'm done. That doesn't stop his love. That doesn't stop anything on his end. He is always faithful and he is always aware of every moment that we're experiencing in this life. And he is there just right next to us. Just like, I'm here. You reach out when you need me and I'm right here. I see you. You think you're alone right now. You think you're in in the middle of a forest where you can't see anything and you feel like you're going to die, but I'm right here. I'm right here. And it wasn't until later that I knew my mom told me later on that all of that time, cause she, I mean, she saw what I was doing. She knew, she didn't know the extent of what I was doing. I've shared with her since, you know, cause I'm, we have an honest relationship and I feel like there's really no point in hiding things. Cause that's, you know, darkness is where junk can grow, you know? So bringing things out into the light and just choosing not to have shame or condemnation about the choices that we've made, but just know, okay, made it. Here we go. Moving on. Um, But she was praying for me that whole time. She was interceding for me and she didn't even know what I was going through. She didn't even know half of what I was feeling, half of what I was thinking, you know, because honestly I had built up quite a bit of resentment with my mom because of everything. I lost a lot of respect for her because of what I had been through as a child Thankfully, we have, the Lord has really redeemed that relationship. But even in that time, we were close, but I was, I was living another life and not letting her see any of that. But, you know, moms know, you guys, moms know that stuff. They know when something's off. And so thankfully, I I attribute so much of me getting through all that with those unforeseen and unknown prayers that she was just lifting up. Because sometimes like when, when you know somebody or if it's you, like, like you don't know how you help that person. Like they don't, there's no, you don't know what to do to help them. Like they're not going to accept the help. Like I was, I'm very stubborn and I have a lot, I have a lot of pride. I'm not going to say had, I'm going to say have because I'm still working on it. Um, Another honesty hashtag, but you know, sometimes when you just don't want to hear it, all that person can do is pray. And that's the most powerful thing you can do. So speaking to those moms that are listening to this, that are, that have kids that are going through all that stuff, I cannot emphasize enough the power of prayer, the power of bringing God into 
that conversation with you. And I can say with all certainty that my mom's committed, never ceasing prayer is what saved my life. Because I mean, I was, I was in some bad places, you know, the boy ended up cheating on me, which was the worst thing that could have ever happened to someone with all the foundations that I had had laid in my life. It was the utmost betrayal. And I was absolutely devastated. Like want, didn't care whether I lived or died, did not care. I drove around Irvine, California with open beer bottles between my legs, taking drinks at the stoplights. I didn't care. I was safe, obviously, at least or so I thought, which is dumb because that's the most irresponsible thing that any person would choose to do in that case. But I didn't care. I didn't care whether I was going to die, whether I was going to live another day. I didn't see any thing good in my future. I was in this downward spiral and I went to those counterfeits that I learned from the ex and started doing more drugs, but I wasn't doing them with anybody else. I was doing them by myself or I was putting myself in really dangerous situations because I was, I was devastated and hurt. And I almost overdosed on a couple of occasions where I really felt like I'm not breathing like I should be. I think my body is starting to shut down. Like it was to that point. And I, in those moments, like where you're just in it. I just remember even in those moments, I was still reaching out to God. And I don't know what I was asking for. I don't know if I was just asking him to save me or to just get me out of whatever it was that I was in, or I didn't know what I was asking, but I just knew that he was my father and I could go to him. What a powerful truth and really what a beautiful thing that you would know that. It's amazing that you at that time, at that age, with everything that you were in the middle of, really knew that he was your father and, and knew that he loved you. Because if you look at your story just on paper, it doesn't necessarily show that. Right. And there's so many people who did not have a father figure in their life and who did not have good adult male role models in their life. And very often those are people that have a very hard time comprehending this idea of God and this idea of God as a fatherly figure. It's just a lot to take in. And, and so many don't make that connection and, and don't have that, that truth in their heart. Yeah. I, I'm going to leave our listeners on a little bit of a cliffhanger here. Because you might think, well, okay, you know, each podcast is somewhere between, you know, 45 minutes to an hour ish. And when we're about at that point, and so we must be wrapping up your story. And we're so not. <laughs> we're we, wrapping up my early 20s. <laughs> yeah, we're just, we have, we have got more. So I, this, this is going to be our first two parter podcast. Mm-hmm. I know so many have connected with the words you've said thus far, there are just so many things that are relatable. Now, maybe not everybody had uh, experienced life in the circus, okay? But <laughs> I, I imagine a lot of people, a lot of listeners experience feeling uh, the feelings of, I don't want to be a burden. Mm-hmm. The feelings of, I'm not good enough, or I'm not pretty enough. I want to be wanted, but nobody wants me. And feelings of, I don't know how to get through this. Feelings of, why God? Mm-hmm. I mean, the emotions and the thoughts that we wrestle with as women in our stories are so similar, even though the specifics of the setting and the you know characters in our, in our stories might be vastly different. Um, so stay tuned, listeners. <laughs> But, you you know, before we sign off of this part one, I was hoping that you would pray for our listeners. And I just, if you have listened to this first one, you're going to want to listen to the second one. There's more. (laughs) I feel like that commercial, but wait, there's more. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my goodness. Yes, there is much more. There is much more, but it would be my pleasure to pray. Absolutely. Oh, 
Father, Father, Abba, Father, Lord, I just want to thank you first and foremost for this ministry, Lord, that you've empowered Jessica and the others involved in making this podcast something that women who really need to hear that they're not alone have the opportunity to to hear and receive this lord and what a blessing it is uh that now on the other side of all of these things that i've been through and we haven't even gotten started (laughs) but i'm just so thankful lord that you're so faithful to walk through these trials and tribulations and and we can look back together on the other side and just see all of the fruit all of the good fruit that's going to come from these experiences lord and i just pray father that that as those who are listening to this would be encouraged and just have this knowing in their heart that you are with them as they're walking through the trials and tribulations that they're going through and lord that they can be encouraged and know that that you are a man of your word and and you never leave anything unfinished and you are a god of restoration you are a god of healing you are a god of power and purpose and lord all things work together for good for those who are in christ and called according to your purposes lord and And you are not a respecter of persons. What is for one is for all of us, Lord. So I just pray, Lord, that those that are touched in hearing this would just be encouraged and empowered to keep walking, to keep walking, to keep looking to you, to seek first your kingdom and all else will be added unto them. And Lord, that that this would just be a time of excitement, Lord, to know that there is a light at the end of the tunnel for the things that we go through and that you are right there with us, walking it out hand in hand. And what a comfort that is. And I thank you for myself and the life that that I've lived and that I get to share it with others and that it would be encouraging to someone, Lord, even if it's just one person who can relate, but I'm sure there's more than one. I'm thankful for this time. I'm thankful for this time on this podcast. And and I just pray, Lord, as we continue, um, more hearts would be open. Uh, more eyes and ears would be open to hear you, to see you, to see you working in their lives, and that there would just be a renewed sense of hope and faith in all of this, Um, because it's really easy to get tired and weary. But Lord, you are our strength, and you are our our strong tower, and, and we just thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness, your goodness, and your love. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much, Leslie. And um, thank you for, you know, not thinking I was crazy when I asked you to share your story after I think it was, you know, about 20 ish years of (laughs) not really being in communication. It could only be God at that point. (laughs) So that's how you know. (laughs) Yep. My pleasure. No, I'm, I'm truly grateful you've opened up a lot of um, a lot of very raw and very real chapters and i am very excited for the listeners to get to hear part 2 so thank you ladies for tuning in we hope to have you back for part 2 of leslie's story good night y'all the story night podcast a ministry of calvary mac for more women's stories visit calvarymac.com/women